0: How's everyone doing? It's Very exciting for me to be sitting here talking with Mark, co-founder of Riot Games, and really one of the biggest gaming companies in the world now, and homegrown in LA. So thank you very much for being here with us.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Um, So maybe for people here who don't play video games or who are not as familiar with Riot Games, can you maybe just set some context on the size and scale of what Riot Games is today?
1: Sure. And just out of curiosity, any video game investors or esports investors in the audience? All right, a couple. Good. So, anybody that plays games in the audience, for a chance? A couple brave hands. There we go. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, Riot Games was founded in two thousand six uh, by myself and my business partner, a guy named Brandon Beck. And um, now, you know, we've been fortunate. We've had a lot of success. Uh, our flagship game is a game called League of Legends. Uh, by many accounts, it's the largest online PC game in the world. Uh, so, we've about a hundred million monthly active players. About 250 million people that have ever played League, uh, probably have about 9 million people playing it right this moment. And um, you know, Riot has grown to have over 20 offices around the world, and uh, we run 13 esports leagues, which we'll talk a little bit about uh, a little bit later. And about 2,500 Rioters, uh, which is our word for employee, um, you know, mostly located here in Los Angeles, but then we have many regional publishing offices. Uh, to go distribute and publish League of Legends uh, and our other games around the world.
0: One of the coolest offices I've actually ever visited. Thank you. Complete with its own hawks that takes on the residents there.
1: Yes, we tried to be environmentally friendly with our pest control solution. So, So you know, our first office was very very not... uh, You know, we have a 12-acre campus now, so it's pretty... A lot of people like complimenting us on the office because it's pretty cool. But, um, you know, as we like to remind everybody when we were first getting started, of course, you know, our office was uh, relatively capital efficient, which would mean in VC speak, it was uh, you know, pretty shitty.
0: So what actually motivated you and Brandon to start this company 13 years or, uh, or so ago? And maybe give us a little bit of sense for what it was like to start a gaming company all the way back then.
1: Yeah, so the world was pretty different in 2006. Um, you know, this is pre-iPhone. Uh, cloud computing wasn't a thing. Facebook was two years old. And uh, so we were essentially hardcore gamers who, uh, after USC, where where we went to school, uh, he worked in strategy consulting at a company called Bain. And uh, I worked uh, first in finance, and then in business business marketing at a company called Advanced Star Communications. And, um, but we were just really hardcore gamers, and and we had these back-to-back gaming rigs in our West Hollywood apartment. And we felt deeply underserved by the incumbents in the industry at the time. Uh, meaning that the game industry used to primarily derive most of its revenues from a packaged good style business model where you create a new game that you then sell at retail, uh, and sometimes you would just sell you know, another iteration of that game, like for anybody that's played Guitar Hero, there would then be Guitar Hero 2, Guitar Hero 3, Guitar Hero Aerosmith, Guitar Hero Metallica, and from our perspective, you know, those types of things would fragment the community um, you know, you didn't necessarily want to just go pay another $60 at retail for some incrementally improved features You know, at best, you just wanted to play Guitar Hero and share songs, and so we wanted to build a company that would put the player first sort of at the center of the decision making and build this direct relationship uh, with our audience, and uh, League of Legends was the content thesis and sort of the proof point to the broader long-term strategy around really high-quality core games, as we called them, uh, as a service. And uh, then, of course, League was one of the first free games uh, in the West. And you know, this is before um, you know, Freemium was sort of a well-known model. And uh, you know, of the 50 VCs that we had met with, most told us no. Um, and in fact, you know, one put it fairly succinctly when they were like, wait, so you want to raise you know, millions of dollars to create a battle arena game where 19-year-old boys are going to be killing each other online. And the way you make money is through cosmetic items where they're playing dress-up doll while they kill each other. And we're like, kind of, but not really. And they're like, yeah, good luck with that, right? as they said no. Uh, but Rick Heitzman from First Firstborn Capital, who's in the room, or at least was when he was here, uh, thank you, Rick. He courageously raised his hand and uh, helped give us some funding. And you know, we uh, had some success.
0: How long did it actually take to make the game? And, and how much capital?
1: Well, yeah, and for every entrepreneur that's been around, it's, of course, a very stressful thing when you're spending a fixed amount of other people's money. Um, And we had the highest burn rate of any company in both Benchmark, who was the other VC that came in for us, uh, and Firstmark's portfolio. And so um, we started the company in 2006, uh, opened our first office in September, and then we launched League of Legends in October of 2009. And again, with a free-to-play business model. So this and this was not Pokemon Go, where it's sort of this you know, instant, overnight success. We were slightly bigger than the month, like the first month after we were, you know, the previous month, and uh, had this long tail revenue model where it took a while to really get rolling, and so uh, it was very stressful. We thought it was going to take three million dollars to build the product. It took us 20, and um, you know, so it was uh, the early days were filled with challenges.
0: Yeah, I mean, just to set some context, this is before the days of low-cost game engines, right? Like Unity, this is before the days of very readily available Amazon Web Services to scale your games. I mean, you guys ended up basically building all the back end and the front end and and, and the distribution in in addition to actually building this game.
1: Yeah, well, you're bringing up a great point. So we originally just wanted to be a game developer building the type of content and games that we thought as players we would want to see. But, and we were originally gonna pursue a parallel financing strategy talking to both VCs, but then also to publishers. But once we talked to the incumbent publishers of the day, you know, they're like, wait, you're not gonna have single player? Your game's gonna be free? Like, you know, what are you talking about? Single player is what 80% of the players do. And you know, most people never even go online. And so we were like, wow, we can't give these guys the keys to the kingdom because we will then fail. Which then meant we needed to take on the responsibility of how do we go build a publishing business, and that meant our scope and in complexity increased significantly. It meant we had to go raise money, and um, you know, and so that's the same type of story where, you know, I think the data points that we had that gave us the courage or conviction to go take risk and go big in, in some opportunities we saw was really that player perspective where you know, we had played thousands of hours of many online games and could deeply relate to some of the pain points of our end users. And uh, the same thing is true with eSports where you know, over time, um, you know, it's for us, we were always shocked that eSports didn't exist because we always thought that there would be many players like us who wanted to watch other people consume this great content and have you know, been uh, blessed to be able to help deliver some cool content like that, which we'll talk sure. about.
0: We'll definitely come back to eSports a little bit later, but I want to go back to one of the things you said, which you guys have over 2,500 riders around mm-hmm. the world. So, I mean, we talk a lot about team building at, at any of our companies, and I've always found in back in game companies as well that there's this added creative burden that you don't you don't see in a general tech company. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what it means for you guys? Like, what is a rider, and what makes for a good rider?
1: Sure. So, you know, Palmer was talking earlier about how you know, many tech companies essentially have the tech and the business side. And you know we have those challenges, but then we also have the creative challenge where we have to make something that really resonates with an audience and is something that is cool and sort of lightning in a bottle. And that's a really difficult thing to do. And so um, you know, we've had to, as we started to scale and needed to grow the company, we needed to find ways to kind of institutionalize our values and build an organization where the best creative talent in the world would want to come to do their best work. Uh, and that, you know, has been, a, has been a huge challenge, but something that's a big focus and priority. And so a lot of that meant that we tried to cultivate a culture that was really a service and mission-oriented company where, uh, you know, rioters, um, you know, even that word sort of conjures emotion of we are here to make it better to be a player. You know, meaning that, you know, we, we as all gamers um, have felt the pain of trying to, you know, taking a day off from work, and you're super excited to go spend a bunch of hours playing a game, and the servers are down, and, or and the developer doesn't even communicate to you or tell you what's going on. It's like, for those that don't play games, go like go, you know you need to be on a flight, and then the airline is like, sir, get in line. You know, and just again is not providing a great user experience. That feels bad. And a lot of this, you know, we've created values over time, um, you know, that we try to reinforce through both hiring and performance management to screen for people who have player empathy. You know, meaning the the desire to relate and capability to emotionally relate to the audience, and then similarly, we have a value, you know, an attribute around player orientation, mm-hmm. which means not just the willingness or emotional desire to connect, but the, you know, the the sort of if there's like the heart and then the mind, the intellectual capability to relate to the frame of reference for when we do a thing, how will this audience that we care about perceive it relative to all the other things that they're used to, uh, and all the other things that great tech companies are doing, and so. That's been, I think, a key part of the success of the company over time, is building this resilient organization filled with incredibly passionate people who want to go solve the hardest problems in the industry uh, at a place that really thinks long-term.
0: That's amazing. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about you know, post-launching League of Legends, sort of five, six, seven years into your guys' existence. Um, Tencent was an investor in Riot Games, yep. and then eventually acquired the company over the early 2010s Um, and you've been traveling there extensively both you have huge fan bases over there as well as obviously with Tencent etc so I'm kind of curious what over the years have you observed are some of the biggest differences as well as similarity in terms of how do you mesh this writer culture with, with sort of what people might typically perceive of what a Chinese sort of centrally run tech company mentality is.
1: Yeah, so I think we, I don't know how common our experience has been, but I'm, I'm happy to rec- recount what our experience has been. So um, when our VCs in 2011 wanted to go test the market to explore our strategic opportunities, um, you know, because the company was having success, you know, as I mentioned, we had to raise a lot of capital pre-launch, so Brandon and I didn't control the company. And so when we were going on the roadshow, um, you know, every American company, you know, media company, game company that we were talked to, still had no idea what we were doing and what made it cool. Uh, so they would purely look at the financials and, you know, and whatnot and value the company based on that, which again, we're healthy and successful and growing. But um, we really thought that a lot of the elements that made the company special relate to our culture, relate to uh, this mission and the way that we sort of prioritize thinking about our players first and revenue sort of a trailing indicator for when we do the right things upstream. And it was fascinating to us that again, a company from China, Tencent, which is you know, the, one of the largest tech companies now in the world, and, you know, and obviously in China, um, really related to our mission and perspective and really valued it. They invested alongside our VCs in our second institutional round, and their perspective was selling the company way too early, this company's just getting started. They wanted to prevent the company from being sold to a company that from their perspective would screw it up where we'd go re- you know, report to VP of such and such who'd tell us kids how to do it and then destroy a lot of value. And so uh, the the deal that we ended up doing were, was more analogous to kind of a long-term private equity deal, uh, and you know it's worked out really well for everybody. Where we've grown the company more than 20x uh, since then. Um, you know, and recently we just shared some numbers externally where you know League of Legends has grossed over 20 billion dollars around the world in the last 10 years since it's launched, uh, which puts it among you know probably the, one of the top and fastest growing IPs uh, ever. And um, you know, so it's it's worked out.
0: That's amazing. Wow. So you and I were also talking a little bit about what Peter Zeihan was saying earlier in terms of sort of some of the differences between the U.S. and China, et cetera. Um, I mean, you guys are one of the first and one of the very few, actually, examples of sort of cross-border collaboration that's worked out. And then also now recently, you're starting to finally see some Chinese companies that are actually entering the Western markets for the first time and seeing success. TikTok. TikTok <laughs> being being the one that's currently, uh, you know, sort of top of mind for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. The moment that we're in now is quite different in terms of U.S.-China relationships. When you guys right. first took investment you know, 10 years ago versus now, TikTok dealing with all the political tension. I mean, how do you think about, you know, is there more opportunity for cross-pollination between companies across two sides? Do you see it centralizing more into their own tech ecosystems?
1: I think there's a lot of collaboration opportunities between Chinese and, and sort of Western companies. Um, two, you know, it was interesting, and, and I mentioned to Peter earlier, that uh, you know, we're an exporter to China, which is pretty rare. China's our biggest market, actually. Uh, and so you know, we're selling billions of dollars of virtual goods just in the Chinese market. And um, you know, so this trade war that we're having, of course, is quite challenging for us, where uh, you know, the, getting the government license to allow us to launch our new games is a very important thing that is somewhat at risk, given a lot of the dynamics. Um, and, but what's, one of the things that's been fascinating also about the exposure to Chinese culture has been, one, just how long-term the you know, sophisticated business leadership and obviously some of the you know, political leadership think uh, and the implications that has on long-term strategic investment mm-hmm. and also the relationship focus. So rather than being super focused on every single deal term that has been negotiated X number of years previously, there's much more of this sort of symbiotic relationship where it's unless the relationship is strong and we're kind of constantly rebalancing then it's, it's off and it needs to be massaged or adjusted or acknowledged or tweaked in some way. Um, you know, just like a marriage. And it's been fascinating to experience that because in our sort of Western, uh, sort of indoctrinated perspective, of course, it's like, well, the deal says X, so therefore it's X. And, uh, but I think we've come to appreciate the, the need to evolve as the circumstances evolve. Uh, but, you know, to, you know, I do think that uh, China has some great strengths and um, you know, they're also innovating in a lot of interesting ways that I think a lot of people don't give them credit for um, you know, and that's a whole other topic.
0: Right, yeah. I mean just speaking of TikTok, I remember when they first came to the US, it was all fully run out of China, mm-hmm. and it's kind of ironic given that a lot of times when Western companies went into China, they tended to just bring the Westerners over to run those divisions, and usually those didn't end up so well, and it looks like now they're actually trying to hire uh, a Western head for basically all everything ex-China. I mean, are you Maybe it's unfair to ask you, but are you bullish that this might be the first attempt that you actually you have a Chinese company building something that's global, or how do you think about that?
1: Well, I think that you know, one of the big challenges for Chinese companies going abroad is from a talent perspective, they don't have the management bench you know, and the sort of, uh, sort of like the brand expertise or the consumer expertise to, you know, and market expertise oftentimes to go penetrate Western markets that are very different than the Chinese mm-hmm. market. And so, you know, I think the strategy, which Tencent has, of course, been leveraging very well, is acting more as a hold co, finding what they perceive to be great disruptive companies, and trying to partner with them and invest in them to let them go do their thing. Uh, you know, and Tencent now owns, a, you know, a pretty good amount of you know, Western gaming companies, including, you know, Supercell and you know, 45% stake in Epic, um, you know, as well as, uh, of course, owning Riot. Uh, you know, and they've they've been very thoughtful about which companies they they back. Um, But I think that a lot of companies that don't have the ability to go penetrate Western markets like many Japanese companies did, if you think of Sony and whatnot that have had great success at cultivating brands, they're going to continue to explore and find ways to go abroad because they're smart, because they have great massive amounts of capital uh, that they're looking to deploy. And so I think we're going to see more of that.
0: So you guys really one of the true pioneers of esports across any gaming company. Can you maybe just talk about and highlight what do you think has been the single biggest benefit of having run all of these tournaments, all of these leagues over these years?
1: We've always thought about eSports as a feature, essentially, so you know, if you just think about the value chain from development to publishing, we thought about it in the same way we think about it as anything else that would add engagement. Um, and so by building an ecosystem of teams that, and players that are parts of these teams, uh, you know, with great content, you know, where they're competing with other teams, um, and then of course having these global competitions and making it easier to become a fan where you can watch and follow the content, you know who's playing. Uh, all of these things essentially meant that we always had, like our players always had something to talk about. They always had uh, sort of a, a new player to aspire to uh, in the same way that you know, the NBA had you know, much uh, lower ratings and much less reach in the early 80s. You know, and say you know, when ESPN came out and really helped you know, grow that audience as well as uh, you know, say college football, you know, sports grow and evolve over time, and a lot of it is how you tell stories and how you can build heroes and whatnot. And so we've been really trying to demonstrate that these players are have incredible talent. You know, like the top one-tenth of 1% of players and those, those that are pros would beat people that are in the top 1%, a 1,000 out of a 1,000 times. There's an exponential skill curve. Um, and so players love to watch other people play, not just because they can do these incredible things, but they can learn from them also uh, and they can someday imagine of them being on stage uh, and being those players. And so, so we've also created a whole ecosystem with high schools now where you can earn vice varsity your letter. You can go into colleges and, you know, we have deals with 11 different college conferences now where there's scholarships that are being offered. Um, and it's really this global ecosystem. And uh, anyway, it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, some of the multimedia stuff that you saw in there and some of the original songs... You know, we also have the blessing of creating our own intellectual property and, you know, having a lot of great creative talent where, um, again, it's like there's never been a fight song for eSports before, right? And so, you know, we were able to go work with artists who are gamers who understand the stuff to then go create some experiences to, again, just enrich what it meant to be a player and to be a fan. Um, and And that's why we think we're just getting started because our competencies are so much stronger now than they have been over the last several years. We now have this massive global distribution um, you know, with this massive audience and players want more. They want more games from Riot. They want more in of our intellectual property to show up in different forms of media. Um, and we're really excited to try to go make some impossible dreams come true for, for our audience.
0: One thing you said, I mean, Nowadays with was high school and, and college sort of degrees and varsity letters. I mean, that didn't exist back when we were playing games. And I mean, I'm, I'm kind of curious, how is that being received, right, by the parents, by their peers? I mean, is this, I guess what we grew up with in terms of playing games, is that really a good thing for you? Like how much has right. that changed so far?
1: So we think it's changing a lot. So we used to get a bunch of letters from parents being like, ah, oh, put in more parental controls because my kid's playing too much. You know, now we're getting emails being like, hey, my kid has talent and how do we go develop this? Are there, you know, coaching, you know, uh, ecosystems that they can go to. And and that's awesome. I mean, you know, now the government gives, uh, of course, visas for eSports athletes. And, you know, and the, and the broader media is starting to look at eSports and gaming with less disdain. You know, historically, it's been sort of a fascination piece where, you know, we felt like, uh, you know, the media, you know, it was just kind of old people being old kind of looking down their nose at, or our players really felt like that uh, and for something that they didn't understand. Uh, but that's really starting to change. And so our focus is always, let's build something great. Um, not go say we're gonna be cool, let's just go do something that's really cool. and you know, But we think that the ecosystem is sustainable over the long run. Uh, you know, we're 10 years into League of Legends and it's bigger than it's ever been. And you know, this is very different than how many esports operate, which are more akin to sort of one-off tournaments or events. Um, that makes it hard to be a fan versus leagues where Again, you know in the Major League Baseball like what the, what the schedule is gonna be published in advance. Uh, and a lot of advertisers and sponsors have tried to really figure this out. And so whether it's Nike or Louis Vuitton or Samsung, you know, the, the premium brands are getting involved in a big way. And that's because it's probably one of the most under leveraged advertising opportunities in the history of the world because of the major demographic divide. Like we're literally the largest sport from a viewership standpoint in China. And for the 18 to 34 year old demographic in the US, we're the third largest sport, um, which is crazy.
0: Wow. Uh, we have just a little over a minute left, so you know, last question from me, um, when you guys started over 13 years ago, you talked a little bit about just how different distribution was back then, how hard it was to actually buy games uh, and play games versus now we have app stores, et cetera, and it feels very much like for the next 10 years, again, distribution is starting to change yeah. with cloud gaming, with subscriptions for games. I mean, how is Riot <coughs> responding sort of to what the next 10 years looks like?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the biggest benefits of cloud gaming is going to be it's going to it's going to be able to have a whole new population of people experience high quality games. So um, when you do a lot of the processing on the server side and then you stream it to a mobile device, you know, you're not eating up your battery life. You know, I mean, you can have a high fidelity, cool experience that can be, again, running essentially on a different machine. The latency still can be an issue. So if you're having a first person shooter and you flip the camera around, you know, premium gamers are not gonna go flock in the immediate term to these new ecosystems because the the quality and fidelity really has to be there. Um, And for people that are really engaged, they're gonna be willing to spend money on hardware and go prioritize having a premium experience at home. But there's gonna be again, if you just think about India and the amount of people that have mobile devices there's going to be hundreds of millions of people that are going to be able to get access to premium content in a way that they 've never done before uh, and we're really excited about that then of course there's augmented reality there's virtual reality um, and the you know the companies that have the competency to build these virtual worlds that we're all going to be spending more time you know on you know over the next several decades are gaming companies and so uh, I think they're going to have an increasingly important part of the media mix. Uh, And then also when AI takes all of our jobs and a lot of young men are out of work, we're going to be thankful that we're not stabbing each other because we're doing it virtually online.
0: (laughs) Well, on that note, thank you so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks, Kevin.